it's great to see all of you here today and uh, in the house of the Lord and I'm so excited about getting the word in a moment and um, uh, for those of you I know uh, they were in the second service uh, Matt and Linda Porch I know we've so appreciated them here for the last four and a half years and um, they are moving to Arizona they're re- uh, entering I, I, Matt's not retired yet but he's sort of in that in-between time and uh, so uh, we, we've so appreciated. They've uh, hosted community groups here for the last four and a half years. They've served as greeters. Um, Linda has come along as really a volunteer admin, admin for uh, community groups and work alongside me. And uh, just wonderful, wonderful people. And we, we knew when they came they, they were not going to be lifers. And uh, we knew they were here for a season and they would be moving on. So just want to let you know that. I'll be leaving Tuesday morning. So today, uh, we've talked about together. We've talked about, Sherry gave a great message on being better together. And then uh, I talked about being stronger together. And last week, uh, we talked about being toxic together. We all know that's possible, that uh, we can be toxic together and we can hurt each other and all of that. But today, we want to end on a positive note. We want to talk about winning together. Um, The idea of winning together, for God has brought us together as a church to succeed together. Christ came to build his church. Satan, the devil, came to steal, kill, and destroy. He's came to tear the church down and frustrate it. <clears throat> now, so to give you a picture of the, my idea today, I turn to team sports, where team sports is probably in our society where we most get to visualize winning together. So uh, many of you, uh, you know, beloved, uh, uh, who love your beloved Red Sox, Red Sox fans, remember uh, 2004, game four in the American League Championship with the Yankees, and we were down by three games. And in the 111-year history of baseball, no team had ever come back in a championship series from being three down. And uh, two men were on base, uh, Johnny Damon, and who was the other guy on base? I thought you would know for sure. It slips my mind who the other guy was. It was uh, uh, Manny Ramirez. Manny Ramirez and, um, and Johnny Damon were on base. Big Poppy steps up to the plate. And let's just relive that awesome moment right now. Ortiz in the deep right field. Back is Sheffield. We'll see you later tonight. two-minute game and worth every second of it for the Boston Red Sox and these fans who stayed here at Fenway Park
four huge outs picked up by Leskanik. A leadoff hit by Ramirez, and David Ortiz sends everybody home just over five hours after it began. The Yankees had been pitching him inside all night. He finally connected a guy who won the division series against the Anaheim Angels wins this game here tonight. He took that one the opposite way over the Green Monster, and this one, he pulled to right. And this ALCS will live on for game five later tonight. A final of 6-4 Boston in 12 innings. that game five later tonight <laughs> you know God cares about team wins God also cares about the individual there's so many scriptural examples where God doesn't just care about the team winning he cares about you winning and he wants the gospel and the plan of God and the word of God to help you in your personal life I, I'm reminded of that time in the life of young, young shepherd David when he goes down to face Goliath and this giant Goliath is challenging the nation of Israel and he's standing every day and defying them and somebody, David goes down to take his brothers some food and he hears somebody say that the person who takes out Goliath will be tax free for the rest of his life, his entire household will be tax-free, and he will get the king's daughter. And there's this very interesting moment in that story where you see young David turn, you always can imagine him going like that. What? And he goes, what shall be done for the man who kills Goliath and takes away the reproach from Israel? In other words, David was practicing what we all experience, which is self-interest. David was saying, what's in it for me? Right? And he wasn't condemned for that. It wasn't, he didn't have to separate the two. So he had this collective win for the nation when he defeats, uh, when he, when he defeats Goliath, and then he, and he has a personal win for himself. And we see that another example is what we, so some of you know is the prayer of Jabez, because it was from a blockbuster book that was written back in the early 2000s, a book called The Prayer of Jabez, taken from the scripture in 1 Chronicles 4.10, where the Bible says, Jabez cried out to God of Israel, oh, that you would bless me and enlarge my territory. Notice he's not praying for the nation. He's not praying for anybody else. He's saying, oh, God, bless me. God, enlarge my territory. Let your hand be upon me and keep my, me from harm so that I will be free from the pain. And God granted his request. And if you go all the way back to the to the the uh, uh, 15th, 14th century, when Thomas Aquinas wrote The Imitation of Christ. You go all the way back there. This book, this book, The Prayer of Jabez, sold over 10 million copies as of 2008. And only 15 Christian books going all the way back to the 15th century had sold over 10 million copies. We are very interested in finding out how we can personally be blessed. So uh, that's good. That's fine. That's no problem these examples of, uh, of, of self-interest are okay. In fact, some preachers have criticized Joel Osteen for his book, How to Have Your Best Life Now, 
I say that that book is not heresy at all. It's what every sensible person is interested in. You are interested in being blessed. You're interested in having better health. You're interested in having more money. You're interested in having uh, happier emotions. You're interested in having better friends or more friends. You're interested in taking care of you. It's okay. Jesus said, I come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. But we're going to read today in a few moments in Acts chapter 4 about a different kind of win. The kind of win we saw with David Ortiz knocks a home run was a win for David Ortiz, of course, but it was a win for the team. And you saw the celebration. And not only that, but you felt you were a part of that win if you're a Red Sox fan. You felt it was our win. And something about it met your emotional need. Something about that, watching that, met a need in you, and it meets a need in me when, when, when we see and we're a part of a team win. I propose to you today that the church needs to have a team win. And you need to be a part of a winning church, not just, have, not just, a, not just a winning self. Not just a winning self, but you need to join a winning church. And you need to help the church win to complete the picture that God has for your life. And so we're going to see in Acts 4 that there was an integration of of winning individually and winning together. Biblical wins always are. It's collective and individual. It's communal and personal. It's together and private simultaneously. It's, 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 We cannot please God and not embrace God's purpose in making us together a portrait of God's love and a reflection of the very image of Christ. I can't be the complete reflection of the image of Christ by myself. I have to be it with you. We have to be it together. In fact, Jesus set the stage for this before he left the earth and before acts took place. He said in John 17... I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. Notice the plurality, those. He didn't just say, I pray for the individuals. I pray for those. That all of them may be one. Father, that just as you are in me and I in you, may they also be in us. That the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I and them and you and me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them, even as you have loved me. Now, let me quickly set the scene in Acts chapter 4. John and Peter, Peter and John, chapter 3, going down to the temple to pray, and there's a man who is crippled. And he says, Give me some silver and gold. Give me alms. And Peter says that famous sentence. Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have in the name of, such as I have give I thee in the name of Jesus, rise and walk. And the man was healed. And this caused great celebration by some, but it also caused great consternation from many because they healed him in the name of Jesus. And the Jewish people were rejecting the name of Jesus. And they were rejecting the person of Jesus. So they they arrested them and commanded them not to preach anymore in the name of Jesus, which they informed them we cannot do. And the Bible talks about the anointing of the Holy Spirit being on these men who healed the the, the lame man at the gate of the temple and who spoke to the crowd that day. 
But I want you to notice what they did next. What Simon Peter and John, these disciples of Jesus, did next. They did not go write a book about their great miracle. They did not uh, start a, a, a PR campaign about their great miracle. They, they didn't try to uh, create an Instagram following. No, they went to church. They went to the body of Christ. They went to the people and they shared the moment and they prayed. And notice what happens in Acts chapter 4 verse 31. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit. It was a team win. And all the believers were in one heart and one mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had with great power, the Bible says. The apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, of the Lord Jesus. And God, and, and, uh, and, uh, and the God's grace was so powerfully at work in them, all that the, all the, there, there were, God's grace was so powerfully at work in them, all of them were there. There were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone as he had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and bought it to the apostles, brought it to the apostles' feet and put it at the apostles' feet. So what we have here is this scene of this individual win which morphed into a team win. And so God has a game for building-shaking moment for the church. And it would be a shame for you to live your whole life as a believer and never experience a Christian we-win moment. So that's what I want for you today. And I want to talk to you about why we win together. Those are those moments that God still has for his church. How many believe that God still has those kinds of moments for his people? We win together for three reasons. One, we win together because we belong to one another. The Bible says... In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 26, if one person is honored, if one part is honored, every part of the body rejoices with it. You can't get any more belonging than your human body. You can't get any more belonging than that. You have great affection and great sensitivity to every single limb, every single part, every single nerve in your body you will run to the doctor if, if, if your little toe starts to ache and cause you pain, it will ruin your day. And you will run to the doctor to say, you've got to do something. I can't think about anything else but my little toe. Imagine that. I can't think, any, I can't think of anything else but my little toe because it's, it's, it's hurting. And... Uh, 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 you, this, you know, like a couple of weeks ago, I, I heard that one of our members lost their job. And I tell you, I felt a pain in my heart. Uh, I, Steve Rice, who usually sits over here, I sat with him yesterday. And he, Steve had a pretty bad car accident the other day and told his car and broke his pelvis, broke his hip. And this young man is in a lot of pain right now. And man, it hurts me to see him there immobilized like that. And uh, I'm, our own Mary Vono here is uh, 
Mary Vono is, uh, uh, broke her hip uh, falling in, a, in a, she was running a snowblower. And uh, she's been in a lot of pain. And uh, uh, some of you don't know Bob Marcunas. Bob Marcunas came to Bethany many years ago. Now he's back at Bethany. And I just, I just had a half-hour conversation with him in the side room here just now. And I visited Bonnie in the hospital. His wife, Bonnie, is, has uh, inoperable cancer. And they're not expecting her to live. And she's in hospice care in Walpole right now. And I, I feel the pain of that. I feel the pain of these people because they are... They are part of me. It's like my big toes hurting, my foot's hurting. I feel a part of it. And I also, also feel just rejoicing that some of you are so blessed. And it's, even, though, even though Elise and Mark, you know, Elise is my kid, and so naturally there would be an affinity there. But it, even beyond that, to see her and Mark enjoying making wedding plans and doing all this stuff and getting ready makes my heart rejoice. Because God has not just designed me to be an individual. He's not just designed me to be this creature of self-interest. He's also designed me to be connected to you and to other people. So that's the first thing, that we belong to each other. The second thing is all about the little word, you. You, in the scripture, almost always refers to us, not me. Uh, In the English language, we don't have a plural form of you. In the Greek language, in the Hebrew language, they had plural forms of you. Like you read, it's translated you, but in, it, it might be a different Greek or Hebrew word that, that signifies that God's talking, uh, the scripture is talking to a, a group of people. And, uh, you know, we, we, we sort of, we sort of uh, make it up in the English language and we come up with phrases like, you guys, and you guys, and if you're from Texas, y'all. So we, we've figured out ways to say it, plural, but, and, and also, as my father-in-law explained to me, uh, there's the um, implied you, uh, and that's not the word you used, Dad, but that's what you meant. Uh, I forget the word you used, but that, there's the understood, that's what you said. It understood you. Sometimes when I would say you, you understand I'm talking about Bethany Community Church. And the other times you understand I'm talking to you. I'm talking to you, Anne. I'm I'm saying this to you. And this is very important. This is more important than you may realize. Because there's the scripture. And if you've been around the church for a while, you've probably had the scripture prophesied over you when uh, you had a disappointment or something bad happened. Someone would say to you, God has shown me that Jeremiah 29, 11. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare, not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. And, you know, God could use a verse out of context like that to encourage you, and it might be true in your situation, but you miss something when you read it like that. When you read the you as just you, and you don't read it, because the you there is not you. The you there is the nation of Israel. And it's very important. It's very important because, and, and this, is, this is going to be difficult for you to hear if you don't know the history already, but as that was being written, Zedekiah, the king of Israel, was having his eyes punched out by the Babylonians, and his, his sons were being executed. So you wouldn't want to go prophesy over Zedekiah, I know the plans I have for you, plans for welfare, not calamity, give you the future and hope, everything's going to be fine, Zedekiah. No. And also... The Israel was getting ready to have 70 years of, of Babylonian captivity. 
So the next time you quote that verse to someone, also tell them right after, you're probably going to have a lot of problems for 70 years. <laughs> then everything's going to be great. So what, what's the point? You say, what's the point? Now, this is really, I, I, I find this really, really good for me. It, 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 the point is, the point is there's a collective me. There's a collective me and there's a personal me. There's a private me and a collective me. And because the collective me, it belongs to God. The collective me, as well as the private me, is the part of the church of Jesus Christ. And so just because, you know, some Christians are going to get executed because they're Christians. Some people are going to lose their jobs because of what they believe. But they are not going to be losers because the body of Christ is going to win. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. They are not going to be losers because the church of Jesus Christ is going to be ultimately prevail. So being on the right team will make you a winner even when you suffer. That encourages me. Finally, there's this other part of understanding. Oh, oh, let me give you a couple more verses with the you in there. I almost skipped over them. Do you know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you receive from God? You are not your own. Now, there's all kinds of things about that verse that tell me I'm a part of others. But the you there is not you individually. The you is the church. The Holy Spirit doesn't belong to you. It belongs to us. The gifts of the Spirit are distributed across this auditorium to all of you so to have the fullness of the Holy Spirit, I must be with you. Because the Holy Spirit has distributed His anointings to all of you so as I say often, none of us have it all together but together we have it all. You need to be a part of the big you and not just the little you. Now here's another uh, fact about about the collective, as we would call it, or the extended family. And that is, a believer's family extends to their church family. Um, we, we might even say that it's our primary family, since it's the one that will last eternally. Uh, compare how Western culture defines family versus Eastern culture. We'll start, let's start there, in thinking about this concept of your family. If you ask someone in Eastern culture... Uh, if you ask someone in Eastern culture, tell me about your family, they're going to tell you about their bloodline, thousands of people involved. If you ask an American, tell me about your family, they're thinking about their spouse and two kids. In fact, one of the reasons that the gospel has been difficult to preach in Japan and Japan has not had a real spiritual revival is because when you ask a Japanese person would you like to accept Jesus as your Savior? Their response is, what about my ancestors? I can't, I can't leave my ancestors behind. Because Eastern culture views family much larger than you do. And then, in, when Jesus comes along, instead of saying, oh, that old, that, that's, I don't, we don't do that anymore, he made it even more expansive. And Jesus said, whoever does the will of my father is your mother, your brother, your sister. He made your family even bigger. He didn't make it smaller. The apostles emphasized church as a family. The apostle Paul, I meant to say, he emphasized church as a family when he refers to his sons in the faith. 
He says, don't rebuke an older man harshly, but exhort him as if he were your father. He says, treat younger men as your brothers, older men as mother, and younger women as sisters with absolute purity. Cynthia Long Westfall writes, kingdom relationships, kingdom relationships are depicted as the believer's primary family. So, I, had, I talked about this to someone the other day. We had a great conversation about it, matter of fact. And he asked me, he said, well, is it possible that early Christians who treated each other as family, whose, whose family wasn't just the people who lived in their house, it wasn't even just their bloodline, they went down to the church and the church members became their family. And they treated them with the obligations that you treat family. I mean, can you imagine? Can you imagine... Uh, unless you're unless you're separated and and and, and the child is not in your custody or something like that, unless that's going on, can you imagine not knowing where your minor child spent the night last night? That's that would be absurd, wouldn't it? I, I you know, you're a thirteen year old, seen your thirteen. I haven't seen him in a couple of days. I don't know where they. What? <laughs> no. When your family. There's obligation that goes with that. And so I thought about the question that the gentleman asked me. Is, is, were they just living out their culture in the, New, in the New Testament and so we can just live out American culture? And I, I, I thought about that a long time. And the first thing that I, that I feel like the Lord brought to me was that ideal culture was given to us in the Old Testament. God, God uh, defined Hebrew culture. And it was a tribal culture. It was a connected culture. Secondly, Jesus and the apostles all affirmed that we are to be family at the church. And then thirdly, I discovered that Roman culture actually frowned on claiming family ties without cause. Because they said... Being a family gives you obligations. Right, it does. You know? Like a family, I understand. You, you come to church sometimes and, you, and, and you, you don't always like what's served at the table when you're a family. You don't always like what mama cooked, right? Or dad, daddy cooked. You know, the, the other day, Christy was preparing dinner and she was cooking Brussels sprouts. And uh, Eden, my grandson, is, is uh, all my grandchildren are unique and interesting, every one of them. And he's like uh, an old soul. He just does things under the radar, and then he sees how you will react. He doesn't announce what he's going to do. And so she's cooking, the, the, and he doesn't like Brussels sprouts. So she's cooking. And she goes to put something in the trash underneath the sink, and the trash can's gone. He's like, where's the trash can? She's looking around, she's walking around, she looks, and it's on the table. <laughs> and she said, Eden, did you put the trash can on the table? He said, yeah, that's for when I vomit. <laughs> Sometimes... When you're part of the church family, we're going to serve Brussels sprouts. <laughs> and you just need to bring your little barf bag, you know. 
Were early Christians merely reflecting their culture? No, they were not merely reflecting their culture. They were obeying God when they became a family. We win together when we act as the family of God. Secondly, we win together because God is among us. Scripture says, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. That, that astounding and exuberant and ecstatic meeting that day was not because of what they were, not because of what they were saying necessarily alone. It was because the Holy Spirit resides in the church. And the Holy Spirit lives among us. First Corinthians 14 is an interesting uh, verse. 24 is a very interesting verse. Now, I know that the, uh, all, all the stuff that you would read about in First Corinthians 14, if you haven't read it, First Corinthians 14 talks about church meetings. It talks about speaking in tongues. It talks about prophesying things that need explanation. But but it, of all that that needs explanation, there's one sentence here that doesn't need any explanation. There's one sentence that doesn't need to be explained, and that's what I want to get to. Uh, but if all prophesy, or all communicate, I would say, and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he's convicted by all, he is called to account by all, and the secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face, he will worship God, and get this last part of the sentence, and declare that God is really among you. Wow. The potential, guys, when we meet on Sunday morning, I know you come, hopefully you come because you want to hear something that will inspire you, you want to hear something that will instruct you, you want to, you want to meet new friends, you want to hear music that will lift you up. I know all of that, I know all of that, but there's something more powerful going on here. And that is the potential that God is among us. That when we meet to worship, there will be a manifestation of God in the house. And that's something that can't be captured just in a pastor's sermon or a worship team's worship. That's something that can't be, can't be uh, uh, simply boiled down to meeting some, forming some new relationships. That is something dynamic. That is something that is life-changing. Church meetings can change your life because God is among us. Together we're reminded that God is still prevailing in the world when we come to church. There's rejoicing in the presence of angels, the Bible says, over one sinner who repents. So when we come to church, we're entering into the presence of angels. The prophet Isaiah, you know, related that in the year King Uzziah died, King Uzziah was his was his human kingdom, political hero. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord how I lifted up. That's why I was quick to bring us together last night. Because I knew what the headlines were on earth. And I knew they were negative, 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 depressing. And, and what, I mean, if you look at the world and the, the suicides and the depression and the... the um, Murder, murder rates up 30% in America today. A lot of that has to do with people being close up in their homes. I know some of it's rioting and all that as well. But I wanted us to bring back together because I, I knew I wanted you to read Heaven's Headlines. And I knew you weren't going to read Heaven's Headlines 
on Facebook or Twitter probably. You weren't going to read them uh, in, 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 in the, all the network news. You weren't going to read heaven. We needed to come together and hear heaven's headlines. See, we're dual citizens. And while I believe our human politics should be informed by the gospel, you will never hear heavy political rhetoric from this platform not because I don't think Christians should be involved. I think Christians should be involved in politics, of course. Uh, but we come in here to focus on what's making headlines in heaven. That's why you come here. There's not time to do both. There's not time to talk about the headlines of earth and the headlines of heaven. So we mostly want to talk about the headlines of heaven around here. Amen? The Bible says the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our Lord and His Christ. Don't, don't worry about an election controversy on that one, by the way, because that's not going to be an election. It's going to be a divine coup engineered by the will of God, and nothing's going to stop it. I, J- Sherry and I had the, the privilege of spending a few days with a guy named Gordon Jensen. I know you don't know him, but he's a really good songwriter of, of years ago. And he wrote this song, When God's People Get Together, you know that very soon wonderful things are going to happen as his presence fills the room. And right now I'm expecting something special, something more, because we're together again, praising the Lord. By the way, God loves crowds. He loves multitudes. He loves throngs. He loves packed venues. The Bible says in Matthew 19:2, large crowds followed Jesus and he healed them. The early apostles then affirmed the beauty of the crowd in Acts 2.41 when they said those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to the church that day. And then we go to Acts chapter 2, verse 46, and we read they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They continued to go to the big venue. They continued to meet together where the crowd was in the temple courts. And they broke their bread in homes. That's important because Jesus had said in Luke chapter 14, verse 23, so his master said, go out in the country lanes and behind the hedges and urge anyone you find to come so that the house will be full. This is no small matter because God desires to do two things simultaneously in your life. He desires intimacy and I guess the opposite would be I don't know, festivities. (laughs) If you want words that rhyme. Uh, God desires to have in your life a love of a few. A few friends that you share life with. And for you to have a love of the multitudes. of the God desires you to be in places where your voice is loud. And you can be heard. And God desires you to be in places where your voice is drowned out by the noise of the crowd. And your voices blend together in praise and exuberance and worship and and powerful praise. God desires you to be in a place where you blend together and your voice doesn't stand out, but your voice blends in with a multitude as a voice of many rushing waters. We need that in the church again today, especially in these days. I want to come in here some days and the sound of your praise be so loud that it sounds like a waterfall as your voices blend together. Years ago, I guess it was about 1978 or 1979, it was a, that was a really interesting time in the, in the world and in the, in the church especially. A time that um, I, wish, I wish all of you could have lived through. Some of you were not followers of Christ, so 
You maybe you weren't aware of it. And then some of you weren't here in those days. But all kinds of celebrities were coming to faith and big crowds were gathering to worship. Uh, uh, um, prom- a group called Promise Keepers was packing out stadiums. 60,000, 70,000 men were gathering in stadiums to worship God. It was really a, an interesting and, and a great time in many ways. Uh, I was a part of one meeting uh, right beside Disney World in Orlando. It was called, it was called the Jesus Festival. And there were, at that particular year, there were about 30,000 who were part of this one meeting. And it, was, it went on for three or four days, and we camped out, and we slept in the back of trucks and everything else. And as, I was a youth pastor, so I had all my youth group there. And uh, all kinds of people were coming to faith. Uh, I think B.J. Thomas was there that year, the guy who did Raindrops Falling on My Head. And Eldridge Cleaver, what a, 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 a black a leader of the Black Panther movement had come to faith, and I remember he spoke that year. But I remember the night that I remember most, I don't remember any of the sermons, and there were great sermons and great teachings and all of that stuff. But I remember the night I remember most. There were approximately 30,000 people in an open field. Jeannie Clattenburg goes to the piano and begins to sing. We worship and adore you, bowing down before you. 30,000 people knelt like that. 30,000 people went to their knees. And the earth shook. That's a moment you don't forget. That is a preview of the world to come. That's a preview of when the kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of our Lord and His grace. God wants you to experience previews of eternity And you do that when you meet with the body of Christ. We do that together. I I, I can't say I'm so dogmatic about this. I'm so dogmatic about this because I want you to, to experience the personal win. I want your health to get better, your wealth to get better, possible, all those things. But I want you to experience the team win. Thirdly, we win together because love True love makes everyone matter. Are we going to ever get this perfect? No, we'll never get this perfect. Somebody, I guess, will always feel left out. But we've got to try not to do that. There is a perfect church, though, actually. I actually saw it. I was driving around in Atlanta, Georgia, one day. There's a church in Atlanta. Big old sign out front says, The Perfect Church. That's the name of the church. I can't go there because if I went there, that would then be imperfect. Are we to try to duplicate what we're going to read in a moment? We're going to reread this passage about how they shared everything with one another. Are we to try to duplicate exactly what happened in Acts 4? No, we have different circumstances today, different social circumstances. We shouldn't try to duplicate exactly no more than we should try to duplicate tongues of fire sitting on everyone like they saw in Acts chapter 2. We can, however, catch the spirit of Acts 4. Let's read it together. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's grace was powerfully at work in them and all, and there were no needy persons among them, for from time to time those who owed land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone as they had need. First of all, the linchpin of the philosophy and theology of the early church 
was the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the resurrection of the Lord is not, first of all, a story of power, though it is. It's a story of love. It's a love story. It's someone who has everything in, in heaven coming down and accepting the burden of earthlings like you and me. Putting us on his shoulders and bearing us to the cross where he forgave our sins. And then transporting us into the presence of God where we do not deserve to be. That's the story of the cross and the resurrection. That's what I am to live out as a member of a church. You say, what about the self-interest you talked about? Well, there's a subtle difference between self-interest and self-centeredness. You are a healthy person if you have self-interest. You are, you are toxic if you become self-absorbed and self-centered. If you cross that line from self-interest to self-absorption, what's the difference? Well, self-interest is when you have a healthy regard for your own needs. Self-interest is when you have a well-defined self and you get better at getting your needs met. God will help you show you how to get your needs met in life. Self-interest is fine. Self-absorption or self-centeredness is when you don't care about anybody else. When you're the center of the world and your happiness is all that matters and you don't want to share your happiness with anyone else. When you are walking in the Spirit, you want everyone to have all the blessings that you have. And you rejoice when another person gets blessed, even when they have more blessings than you, because they're a part of you. And so when they win, when they knock the ball over the green monster, you win. Because they won. It's great. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his classic work, Life Together, wrote, The Christian must bear the burden of a brother. He must suffer and endure the brother. It is only when he is a burden that another person is really a brother and not merely an object to be manipulated. The burden of man was so heavy for God himself that he had to endure the cross. God verily bore the burden of men in the body of Jesus Christ but he bore them as a mother carries her child, as a shepherd enfolds the lost lamb that has been found. God took men upon himself and they weighted him to the ground, but God remained with them and they with God. In bearing with men, God maintained fellowship with men. It was the law of Christ that was fulfilled in the cross and Christians must share in this law. You can only bear so many burdens in life and Jesus knew that. Jesus came to earth and he could have picked up the burden of political revolution. And much to the consternation of the zealots of his day, he did not pick up the burden of political revolution. Now, I'm not suggesting that Christians should not run for political office, should not be involved in politics, should not speak up about political... I'm not suggesting that at all. But I'm talking about the church. What burden should the church carry? Jesus came and could have chosen the burden of political revolution and he could have been a political hero. But instead, he chose the burden 
the burden that he picked up was to put his spirit in a group of people who would do life together and ultimately become the beautiful bride that he would return to be eternally united with. This series that we've been preaching is to invite you to not only accept Jesus as your personal Savior, though we want you to do that. This series is to invite you to become the beautiful, glorious, incomparable, spirit-indwelt church of Jesus Christ. And let's do it at Bethany Community Church. We'd like to do it for every church, but we don't control every church. We only control this one. We only control this, this physical location. So let's win together. And let's make this a winning place for everybody that comes in the door. Amen? I leave that with you. Thank you for really receiving this series. And I hope you'll take it to heart. God bless you.